In this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast, I'm joined by Eric Degatti to discuss movement systems, movement screenings, considerations for program design, and so much more. This episode is jam-packed with all kinds of valuable information that is guaranteed to provide valuable insight to any strength coach, trainer, therapist, chiropractor, or student who's interested in the fields of exercise science, athletic training, physical therapy, chiropractics, or sports in general. When it comes to functional movement and human movement, you won't find many people more qualified to talk about it than Eric. Eric has spent the last 20 years in the fitness industry as a coach, trainer, and instructor, pioneering his unique approach to client assessment, performance enhancement, and injury prevention. His company, One Human Performance, provides fitness training and wellness services in the state of New Jersey, and he's operated a multidisciplinary facility for 12 years. He has since moved on to focus solely on coaching and consultation services in addition to education. He actually is an instructor for the Functional Movement System Con Ed course, which I'll link to below. Before we get to this awesome episode with Eric, quick word from one of our sponsors. Eric, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on today. Thanks for having me. So for those who aren't familiar with you, could you share a little bit about yourself and the kind of clients that you work with? Uh, that's a loaded question to start with, Dan. <laughs> um, so the type of clients I work with kind of varies, and I'll kind of backtrack it with the first question of, of uh, a little bit of my background. So I've been in the strength and conditioning and performance world for over 20 years. Um, and so with that along the way, I've done a lot of different roles within that from owning my own facility for 12 years to hands-on, you know, training, coaching with both individuals as well as teams to this day, I still work with, uh, and contract with different high schools for working with their teams, uh, and can, as well as a consultant for different organization teams that will bring me in. That's, that's a part of what I do. And then the other half of it is the education that I provide, um, going out and teaching around the world. I've been a lead instructor for functional movement systems for the past 15 plus years, as well as develop my own content that I've got to go out and teach internationally as well. That's an incredible resume. And you've really learned from some of the best in the business from the likes of Greg Cook, Charles Poliquin, Mike Clark. You have a very impressive background now, when it comes to the people you've worked with and the high caliber people that you help on a regular basis, whether they be professional athletes or Navy SEALs or uh, the like, what do you feel has been your key to success when working with these clients from a uh, training standpoint? Is I would say the biggest thing is, is finding out more about them, kind of what not only makes them tick, but also what they need. And, and asking what, what we call the key questions and finding out what, what is it um, that got them here in the first place. First question in the door is always why are you here? Um, and then, the, you know, from there, it's to, then it's peeling that back to say, okay, why? why? I'm like a four-year-old. And I say there's always four why, a minimum of four whys until I actually get to the real answer um that before i can even answer you so finding out okay well i want to get faster okay well what does that mean to you well, what is you know why are you not fast now um and and keep asking questions like that and then we can start to figure out where we start so you don't walk in and then it's not eric's program that would make my life a lot easier if i just had a handbook and i gave it to you but finding out what where do i direct you on the path there's there's where you are now and there's where you want to be and 
what are the links, the, the weak links that are holding you back from being there or you be there already? Right. I completely agree with you. Your ability to assess a client determines ultimately the success that that client is going to experience, right? Like you said, you can't just take a client and put them on a cookie cutter program and expect everything to work out swimmingly. You can't just have someone walk in the door who says, I want to get faster. You make them push a sled, squat and deadlift, and they're going to get faster. That's not how it works. Every single person is different. They have unique needs and unique differences in how they move. You mentioned before that you do a lot of instructing for functional movement systems, FMS, and that is a great way to help screen uh, athletes and clients and determine what specifically they need. So just starting off, what is the FMS for people who haven't heard of it before? Okay, so the, the FMS or the functional movement screen um, is it checks one box of all the boxes that I need to check in my checklist of things that, uh, that are, are essential for you to get to where you wanna be. And what we, what we don't really have or what we didn't have um, going back into, uh, into the late 90s when the FMS was, was uh, created was a biomarker for movement. We had a, 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 a kind of changing of tides as we always do in our industry, where it went from a more bodybuilding machine-based type of um, structure in most, most facilities. And then you saw this wave come in where functional training became the cool thing. And it started with people like Bern Gambetta and then followed up by Juan Carlos Santana and all these people who became big in terms of selling that we're gonna have, we need more functional training. And we were doing functional training, but we didn't have a gauge to know if it's even working. Like if I'm doing speed training, it's pretty simple. Did I get faster, right? If I'm doing strength training, did I get stronger? Well, if I'm doing functional training, how do I know if I'm getting more functional? What does that even mean? And what is my baseline to know if I even need it in the first place? And so uh, a physical therapist by the name of Gray Cook um, came up with this concept of, of looking at movement holistically and looking at it in terms of patterns and being able to say, okay, well, what are the patterns that, that, that everybody should do? What are the minimums in terms of movement, in terms of competency that everybody should pretty much be able to, to meet? And so what that would then serve is a filter for the person coming either into rehab or the person coming into a strength and conditioning environment to say, well, before we even look at how we challenge you from a, a, a physiological standpoint, from a movement standpoint, do you at least meet these minimums? Now, with that, you know, came this, this movement screen that was created in the late, late 90s, early 2000s. And then since that point, it has evolved tremendously um, and been used a lot of different ways and also been misused and misunderstood in a lot of other ways. Um, it was originally designed uh, for to, as part of high school pre-participation physicals. Um, and so one of the co-founders, Lee Burton, is an athletic trainer and wanted to have something that he could filter out to, to figure out what is some of the commonalities of the kids that I see in my athletic training room every single day. And then there's other kids that never come in here. Why, why are some kids more in quote unquote injury prone and other kids are more durable. And is there a movement factor in there? And that's where it kind of started out. And then from there it evolved to where it started getting used in professional sports. And then it started getting used with the military. And then it's expanded beyond that as our reach is expanded and where it's expanded to where now it's in general fitness. And now you're starting to see it in, in corporate work settings. And so 
the 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 user end user has changed dynamically uh, or dramatically, I should say. But but the main uh, concept of just looking at you meet your basic movement minimums has pretty much stayed the same. Right, and your ability to do those basic minimum movements is essential for everyone, like you said. Right, one of the key movements that the system looks at, uh, from what I've learned about it, is the squat. And if you can't squat properly with just your body weight, then should you walk into the weight room and load up four or 500 pounds and attempt to squat? Likewise, if you can't even squat your uh, body weight normally and you work uh, maybe a blue collar job, construction site, something like that, where you're lifting up 40, 50 pounds consistently over and over and over again, that will eventually take its toll on you and cause pain and set you up for a variety of different health implications down the line. Uh, so I love the simplicity approach that this uses. And I'm sure you can speak to the fact that it's incredible the people that you see, you give this screening to that, you know, maybe they're a high caliber athlete or high level, and they struggle with some of these basic things. Yeah, and that's because they're great on the field, the court, the mat, the the um, the ice, the the uh, whatever you know stage that they work on. They're great in spite of themselves, not because of what they do. And so that you can still be really, really good in a sport or an activity, and not have you know good movement competency. It's only one box of many that we need to check. Now, what we have found is that the people who don't move well, who, who score poorly, they generally tend to, to, to break down. They also tend to not come back as quick uh, when they do get hurt or they get injured. Now that, that unfortunately sometimes gets extrapolated into saying, well, we predict or prevent injury. And that's not the case. What I'm looking for is to see, are there certain risk factors you will have? And, and movement competency in the FMS is just one of those things. We also look at your, your, your motor control through something like a Y-balance test or a motor control screen. Plus we look at other factors uh, in, in terms of lifestyle factors, in terms of a lot of different things in, in your physical capacities and all that together in an algorithm, then I can have a better idea of, of who I can predict is gonna get hurt or who's not gonna get hurt. This, what it does in terms of preventing injuries is it helps me from injuring you. And let me explain that. If you come to me as a client, right? And we want to start training on day one. And let's say, like you said, you don't have the ability to even do a deep squat. Even if I, if I gave you a, a downgraded, modified version of that squat, you still can't control your body enough to get into a deep squat. Now, that doesn't predict anything in terms of your athletic performance. It doesn't predict that you're going to get hurt. What it tells me is kind of like you said, is probably the best choice for day one is not going to be loading a bunch of weight in onto you or a bunch of, of repetitions or, or volume onto you of that movement pattern. And it doesn't mean you're never going to do it again. It means I'm going to temporarily take pause. And the first thing I'm going to do is before I throw a bunch of corrective exercises at you, and that's the other misconception is that this is about finding a reason to prescribe a bunch of corrective exercises. And I don't even really use that term a whole lot in terms of a corrective exercise. The first thing I need to do is remove the negative and say, okay, well, let's, let's at least not make this worse. So when it's injury prevention, it's making sure that I don't hurt you. Right. And so the joke I say is like, you know, people talk about injuries. Well, you can walk outside, get hit by a bus tomorrow. Right. Well, yeah, of course you could, but I'm not going to be the one pushing you in front of the bus. 
And so with that, I'm going to make sure I'm not the one who hurts you. There's people getting hurt in weight rooms every single day. And sometimes that's inflicted by the coach, the trainer, because they just, they didn't take the time to take pause to say, well, what is it that you're qualified to do? What is it that you, that you shouldn't be doing? Because as much as we're looking at what well, the things that you might want to avoid temporarily until we can fix those movement deficiencies. And if, and if we do need to fix them, they usually only take a week or two to fix. This is not a death sentence of years on end of, of, of corrective exercise, but it also tells me what you can do. So let's say you're great at everything except for your deep squat. I still have a laundry list of hundreds of different things I could do to challenge you where you're still going to get a great workout. I can still get you to your goal while I'm addressing this stuff in, at the same time. Right. And that's what makes a great trainer, right? Is the ability to pick out those impairments and then program accordingly around them. But as you said, you have to be able to pick out movement dysfunction. So how do you know when a movement is impaired? What kind of signs are you looking for? Let's say with uh, the squat, for example, since we were working with that uh, before, if you're analyzing a squat, what signs are you looking for that indicate some kind of movement dysfunction? So if we look at the deep squat in, in, in terms of the and how the movement screen looks at it, is that we have different criteria uh, that you have to meet, whether, and we do it with an overhead squat, and uh, can you even get in the position is the first thing. Um, and then from there, we look at, we have a certain checklist that we go by in terms of, can you set your feet, keep your feet straight? Can you keep your heels down? Can you keep your knees tracking properly? Can you get your, your torso and tibia parallel? A bunch of different things that we're gonna look to say, if you can meet all that criteria, um, then we know that this is, this is, is a, a passing score. But if you don't, we'll even modify it a little bit. We'll adjust your positioning and then see if you can do it again. And if you still can't do it and you're breaking a bunch of these rules, then you know what? This is something that we need to take pause on. And we're going we're gonna to not only look to address some of those reasons that we find, but we're also going to um, remove that negative of not have you challenge that movement until we can get this at least to a, a passing uh, acceptable level. And so with that being said, that's only one piece of it. There are some systems that that's all they look at is your deep squat. And there's some people that say, well, I just watch people squat. Well, there's a lot of moving parts when you look at that from the fingertips to the toes, literally. And so I can't make any assumptions based on that. And if I start pointing out, well, this is tight and this is weak and this is, you're going to miss a lot of stuff or you're going to waste a lot of time addressing stuff that doesn't need to be addressed. Because if you want to, you know, do the, the go-to in, in the rehab and fitness world of it's tight hip flexors and weak glute medians, right? We could, we could change the world if we just made everybody's hip flexors looser and then strengthen their glute medians. Well, those same muscles are also used in a lunge. They're also used in single leg standing. They're also used in hip hinging. They're also used in a bunch of other things. And so if I test all these different movements and the only time I'm finding these tight things or weak things is in a deep squat, it's not anything tight or weak. It's that pattern is something that you don't know how to handle. And so that's a more global patterning issue. Now, if I find that every test that we go through, I keep seeing a lack of hip extension, well, we may have some restriction in your, in your hip flexors. Um, but that has to be, but I have to see that keep coming up because now when we, we start peeling this back, we have to figure out, do we have a, a global uh, movement issue? Do we have a more regional control mobility uh, issue? Or do I have a local problem? 
And unfortunately, a lot of the places we start, whether it's in, in our world now, because we, keep, we, we went in and stole a bunch of stuff from physical therapy or, or in the rehab world, we like to blame a part and say, okay, well, this is a local problem. It's the ankle um, where it may be a regional problem and it's the whole low, lower quarter, or maybe a global problem that if you just taught, taught this person to squat properly, that ankle is no longer a restriction. So we have to kind of peel it back and first, and what level am I working at here? And one of the things that you brought up there was that poor motion can really exist anywhere, but the poor movement pattern can only exist from the brain, right? You might have tightness in the hip flexor, say in a certain position, but that position might make everyone's hip flexors tight, right? If they are maximally lengthened, it might feel a little bit tight. You might have a weak glute med in certain positions, but in other positions, hey, maybe their muscle length is different and they're firing optimally. So you really have to go at this with the mindset of almost like neurological reprogramming more than just a biomechanical construct. Uh, at least that's what I'm taking from it. Well, it works both ways. I can have a restricted ankle <laughs> that now uh, everything that's stacked on top of that has to work around that restriction. And that is the driver of a poor squat or... I may have uh, just an issue where I can't create the sequencing and timing necessary to put all those parts together and have them work at the right place at the right time. And so that's where we have to decipher out which is which. And that's where testing and evaluation is, is, is critical because then I'll have to guess. You know, I don't watch somebody do you know, three squats and assume that I know everything about their, their movement or their structure or function. I'm just going to take note and say, okay, well, that's something I want to be aware of as we keep going. And then if I see commonalities that everything that involves dorsiflexion, this person seems to be challenged with, okay, well, let's take the guesswork out of it. Let's actually measure that. And if we see that, okay, well, this person has 10 degrees of dorsiflexion, well, then we may have a local issue. And now we need to jump at that and address that. Um, whereas I don't, you don't have to have the guesswork if you, if you know the right path to follow and you have kind of the right questions to ask and keep asking why. So if even if you said you do have tight hip flexors, my first question before I, before, and you say, well, what's a good stretch for that? I'm going to say, well, why are they tight in the first place? Because what if I stretch you and I make you worse? Because that could happen too, right? And so maybe those hip flexors are tight for a reason. That might be the only thing stabilizing your trunk and pelvis. And so if I go and stretch them, we make them worse. And I, I actually did you a disservice. So I'm always asking, again, I'm always going into a bunch more whys before I answer your question. Right. You brought up a great point with the hip flexors, right? They, in some cases, might be the only thing stabilizing the trunk. Someone might have inhibition of the core and other deep sus subsystems. But how do you know whether or not it's a mobility problem or a stability problem? How can you kind of piece out what the root cause of that issue is? Well, that's a kind of never-ending quest that we're on, and there's 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 certain ways you can tease it out. Um, so the, the the most simple way is is look at it loaded versus unloaded. So if you're somebody that um, you know, we can put you in a in a Thomas test position where you're basically laying back with your butt up at the front edge of the table and hug one knee to your chest and then let the other leg drop down. And if that's an unloaded position, it's a non-weight bearing position, and if that knee just drops right down and it has a nice spongy end feel to it, and it's, and it's, it's you know, hanging off the table and it's below parallel, then it's, it's probably not a mobility issue, right? Um, and so uh, 
there we have to start to look at motor control concerns and look in, and to see is there is it a stability and timing and sequencing issue. Now, let's say if it is springing up off of the table and you got this diving board looking thing for a hip flexor, but now we have to keep adding more questions. Okay, well, why is it that stiff? Is this something that's we've gotten from adaptive shortening because this person sits 12 hours a day hunched over a dining room table with a laptop? Um, or is this somebody that has um, repetitive overstress because they're a, a cyclist and it's and it's come from that? Is it because there's soft tissue restrictions within there? Um, is it? Uh, and so we have to start diving down even deeper to say, okay, well, what am I going to do about this? Because guess what? Your 30 second hip flexor stretch going up against a, uh, you know, someone who cycles 20 miles a day or, or sits at a desk 12 hours a day is going to be like trying to empty the ocean with a Dixie cup. It's going to be a futile uh, battle that you're going up against there. As a mentor of mine has said it, we think in terms of duct tape and WD-40 here, right? If it needs to move more and it doesn't, we think WD-40. And if it moves too much, which is kind of rarely the case anymore from what I've seen in my experiences, uh, we need more duct tape. We need to strengthen it. But like you're saying, there's almost like a third road to this. There's the potential for neurologic compensations to alter the uh, muscle activity and muscle length in certain positions. So getting to that root cause of the problem, as you've said, is a huge ongoing battle. And that's something that really takes time to dive out. Now, if there's athletes or coaches listening, they might want to know how long would it take me to get to the root cause of a problem? How long does it usually take someone like yourself to really dive to that cause of a movement dysfunction for one of your clients? So I just follow a system, right? I always say in, 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 uh, in our world, there's, there's kind of two types of people that are at the top levels and some of the people that you mentioned earlier that have had the, the good fortune to study with. There's people who are wizards, right? And someone like a, a, a gray cook is a wizard who just thinks on a different plane. Um, who can walk in a room and just watch, you know, watch you move for a couple of minutes and he can know all the right buttons to push. Whereas there's other people that are more systems managers. And that's me in that I basically just have a really good checklist. And every time I learn something, I see how does that fit in my checklist so I can go through and say, okay, well, if they can do this, then go this way. If they can do this, then go the other way. And then I just keep following down that path until we pulled it back till we, till we see enough. Now, that being said, we have to see what takes hold. Now, if your mode of, of uh, intervention as a, as a PT is more manual work, if you're doing a spinal manipulation, you're doing a soft tissue uh, intervention, you're doing um, kinesio taping, um, or on my end, my main application is going to be exercise. So I need to see, is it making an impact? And now how do I see if it's making an impact? Well, there's to take it back, I say there's really um, five main questions that we have to ask when we go into changing movement. First is, do you even need it, right? And that's, that's a big step that people often miss. That's what screening comes into play because you know what? Movement screening also could find out that I don't need to fix anything, right? And, and so often if we wanna be these corrective exercise uh, you know, gurus. Well, what if you have nothing to correct? You're out of work, right? So, 
Um, I'm not looking to, to, to correct things if they're not, if they're, if they're moving just fine. So the first question is, do I even need this? And then the, the second question is going to be, um, when we, when we go and, and, and figure out what it is you need to, you know, where it is you need to, to address this movement, then we have to figure out, um, if we apply certain interventions, right. And I'm going to do my best guess, cause that's all we're doing. And I hate to peel back the, the, the curtain. On, on our world, but we're really making best guesses based on experience, um, is then I'm gonna apply, in my case, exercises, and then I'm gonna go back and retest that. And I wanna see, did it, did it get anywhere? Can you even get there? So if I'm working on your ankle dorsiflexion, and we've done some drills for that, I'm gonna go back and immediately retest that. Now, if I see that it's improving, it may not get to, it's not a, a magic wand, it may not get to where we want it to be, but I see it's improving. Now, well, that gives me the, 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 the affirmation that we're on the right path, but more importantly, it gives the client or patient the right affirmation that, hey, this is gonna work. I saw this much change in just a couple you know, minutes of doing this. Imagine if I did this every single day, a couple times a day. So that answers the next question of, can you even get there? Is this gonna make an impact? Because let's say you're somebody you know, working in the NFL for years, offensive linemen have tons of bony restrictions in their anterior ankle because they have 400 pound guys shoving them backwards and they're stomping down into active dorsiflexion the whole time. And they get a lot of bony restrictions. I'm not going to change that with an exercise. And you might not even be able to change it in a clinic. You may need to get surgical intervention. So I need to know, am I going to even be able to get there? Um, and so I got to, that's a little bit of trial and error. And that's it. And it's educated guessing trial and error, but does it make an impact? And then the next question is, is, uh, well, the good news is it's going to get there if we did make a positive change. The bad news is you don't own that, right? You, you just, you're just renting that new movement for a little while. The next question is, can you own that? Can you walk in the door without any prompting, without any intervention, without any rolling or stretching or, or any types of uh, uh, pre-activity? Can you show me that activity cold? And if you could do that, now you kind of own that. That's part of your new movement behavior. But that's not the last and most important question is can you actually use it? Can you actually use that dorsiflexion when you're coming down the mound and delivering a pitch? Because if you can't, then all I did was get you good at exercise. I didn't necessarily get you back to where you need to be. And that's a big step that's missed on the other side, especially in rehab where we get you to weight-bearing and pain-free, but you're not ready to go out and play a lacrosse tournament this weekend. You're not ready to go out and throw 90 miles an hour again, you're just enough where you've regained range of motion and you're pain-free. So those are the questions that I ask. Now, to, to, that's a roundabout answer of how long does it take? If I don't see a somewhat of a change, if not a significant change in a week or two, I am changing paths and I'm digging deeper and figuring out I missed something. What did I miss? If this person's following the program and they're doing it correctly, we've missed something. We either missed something in our assessment or we pick the wrong drills, or something's not working. I'm not letting you go six six months, let alone six weeks, uh, let alone two weeks, without stepping in and saying we need to change paths automatically. And using the system that you uh, have kind of described there, where you isolate the specific restriction. So we were using the ankle as an example. Let's say it's ankle dorsiflexion again. You isolate that the restriction is ankle dorsiflexion. So you start to retrain that movement at that joint, and then you begin to integrate it into other patterns through different drills and exercises, and then you apply it functionally to the specific uh, sport demand or specific movement, like you said, throwing a pitch, blocking as an NFL lineman, and then 
if that restriction is persistent, you, like you said, you look above or below the chain. So maybe that restriction in ankle dorsiflexion isn't at the talocrural joint, at the ankle joint. Maybe it's at the subtalar joint because you need inversion eversion in order to dorsiflex the ankle. Maybe it's above the chain. Maybe it's up by the knee. Maybe you have some hamstring tightness, for example, right? The biceps femoris gets a ton of attention as the tight hamstring muscle. And a lot of people forget that it attaches to the fibular head. So if you have tightness of the proximal attachment of a distal joint, right? That distal ankle is kind of like a brick and mortise in nature. So if you have tightness at the proximal end of the bone that forms the distal uh, articulation, then naturally you'll have implications there as well. As you said earlier, all of the different components of the body are anatomically connected and dysfunction in one place can cause dysfunction up or below the chain. Yeah, and that's the whole concept of what we call regional interdependence. And so um, that concept being is, let's go back to the tight hip flexor. Um, realize that you, you have what's going on above and below it if you have restricted dorsiflexion, well, how do you think you're walking without tripping over your feet the whole time? You have to then create more hip hiking and kind of pull yank your hip through every time. Or maybe like you said, there's lack of, lack of uh, stability up directly above that. And so we can't just address one without addressing the other. And, and the way it stacks is kind of this really elegant way of we have these uh, interchanges between mobile, mobile areas and, and stable areas. And where it goes wrong, you start to also see those same, same things. So where do we see at the ankle? We see a lot of lack of mobility in the ankle uh, for a number of reasons, but you see a lack of stability at the knee. And then you generally see a lack of mobility at the hip, but a lack of stability in the, in the lumbar area, a lack of mobility in the, in the T-spine and thorax, but a lack of stability in the shoulder. And so you start to see all these things stack on, on top. And so if you address one and don't address the other, and I just do T-spine mobility, but I don't have good uh, uh, I'm sorry, T-spine mobility, and I don't have good shoulder stability or, or trunk stability underneath it, it's probably going to be fleeting. It's not going to, you're not going to come back and own that movement. Right. And that, again, just further emphasizes our point of the importance of a good movement screening and evaluation, because more often than not, most people will not think from a global regional interdependence perspective, right? If you have a, a baseball pitcher come into your clinic and they have elbow pain or shoulder pain, how many clinicians or coaches or trainers are looking at the spine? How many of them are looking at core strength and core stability, right? Because as you just lined out, it starts from the ground up. So whether that's lower quarters starting from the foot and ankle up the chain or for the upper quarter starting from the spine, right? If you don't have a stable and mobile spine, then you're going to have comp uh, compensatory movement patterns down the upper extremity. Uh, so again, that just further emphasizes the point, I think, of the importance of looking at everything. Now, for those interested in learning how to look at everything from a systematic approach, kind of like we've outlined, where can people find out more about first the FMS and other movement screen based uh, systems. Okay, so you have you can learn about the the, uh, the the different tiers of the the FMS 
um, as well as the medical model that they built off of that called the SFMA. Uh, you can get all that through functionalmovement.com and we have both uh, 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 virtual, we have live and, and in-person uh, virtual courses as well as online courses. Um, but then realize that the FMS and the SFMA is just the, the bare minimum. Like we're just looking at bare minimums, like you should be at least able to do this. Um, and it, it's funny when I, you know, I remember distinctly sitting in the office going through a report um, with the entire medical and training staff and, and the head coach of, of an NFL team. And I'm trying to explain what some of this stuff means. And I explain, okay, well, this is what a hurdle step is. And he's like, what do you mean? He goes, I have guys who can't do that. And he said, he goes, I could do that. How? I, I don't understand. I have, we're paying millions of dollars for guys who can't do that. And so it's just the bare minimums, right? Um, but there, what we look at in terms of norms and, and, and minimums and norms and extremes, we, also, we have to also understand we can't confuse the two. So like the amount of range of motion at the shoulder that a baseball pitcher requires, right? And we're looking for that, that full range of motion arc of probably about 135 degrees. The average Joe who's just going to Orange Theory and working out and trying to get fit, you know, to look in their jeans and play with their kids – like they don't need that full arc. Um, and so I can't set a, a, a norm up for that individual that's based on an extreme. Yet at the same time, I can't tell you confidently um, that if someone clears an FMS shoulder mobility screen, that they're ready to go out and throw a ball 90 miles an hour because that would now be trying to hit an extreme based on a norm, right? So that's why the FMS is just a starting point. If I need to look at a more extreme specific movement screen, well, that's where we have things like, well, for baseball, because that's one of the big th areas I work in is on base university and looks at specific things that are needed to either uh, to, to throw a ball on our pitching screen or to, to hit a ball well uh, and efficiently in a hitting screen. Or that's derivative of what was originally created by Dr. Uh, Greg Rose is the TPI screen for golf, right? If we look at trunk rotation, the average person uh, and I joke with my clients, they'll, you know, we'll check their trunk rotation. They'll say, is that good? I said, you have all the trunk rotation you need to be an accountant. But if you're going to go out and swing this long metal shaft really, really fast, you know, close to a hundred times this weekend, you need to turn that thing a bunch more. And because if not, that stress is going to land somewhere, or you're going to have to generate the force from somewhere. And it's going to be at the very least be inefficient, right? Can you still perform really well? Absolutely. I can give you names of people that have performed at the highest levels and they don't move all that well. And sometimes that stiffness is a little bit to their advantage. Sometimes that uh, also is, is what leads to their breakdown or the fact that they, they can't stay healthy. But it's just one piece of looking at someone's efficiency. And it doesn't necessarily, again, predict their performance. It just tells me why they go about doing things the way that they go about them, why they may come over the top in their golf swing, as opposed to, to going in the correct path, because they don't have another choice. And so their body's finding the path of least resistance. And the people that we see on TV playing sports at the highest level are people who are really, really good compensators in one way or the other. That's what makes them great. Their ability to adjust and adapt and, and, and be able to do that is what makes them great. And so we want to just funnel those abilities into the best, uh, into the best channels, so we we can build a durable performer that's resilient, performs at a high level, and then the 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 other piece of the, the puzzle is 
Um, we've been talking a lot about movement competency. There's also a whole nother side of this that looks at physical capacity. And a lot of people who get caught up in the corrective exercise world or, or in the rehab world forget that side to say, um, there's a certain amplitude of force that this person needs to be able to accept, absorb and recycle and produce. And so if I don't understand the, the uh, level at which they need to do that, the speed at which they do that, the volumes at which they need to do that, the frequency at which they need to do that, then I'm gonna miss the boat as well. And it's not just looking at it from trying to mimic a baseball swing or a golf swing in the clinic or in the gym. It's to say, well, what are all the factors that go into the, to the checklist of physical properties that you need and neurological properties that you need to perform at the highest level and stay injury-free? I love those points you just made. As you said earlier, it's all about why, why, why. And if you can get to the bottom of that question, like you said, peeling back almost like layers on an onion, so to speak, if you can really get to the bottom of that root cause, that's when you really become effective. And then as you said uh, just a second ago, specificity is crucial and often overlooked, right? We need a specific adaptation to the imposed demand. And maybe someone's you know, first or second rep of a body weight squat and a movement screen looks perfect, but they don't need to just be able to do that once or twice. They need to do the uh, metabolic workload equivalent of doing that 50, 100, even 200 times, uh, essentially in sport uh, participation and uh, competition. So being able to match the screening and the interventions that you have to the specific demands of that athlete and of that individual are crucial to their success, as you just said. Uh, and too often, uh, physical therapy uh, especially falls into that trap. And I'll pick on us a little bit because here I am, uh, just wrapped up my coursework for my doctorate of physical therapy as we're recording this. Um, we often give people cookie cutter sets of you know three sets of 10 straight leg raises sideline leg raises maybe we throw an ankle weight on there do some long arc quads right they're just kicking their leg out actively and you know that might work you know in the first week or two for an older individual who doesn't really need a whole lot of new strength but for our younger individuals right those in their uh, teenage years 20s 30s 40s we have to actually load their tissues. We have to load their bodies. If we're not loading them appropriately from an endurance standpoint, a uh, load, a total time under tension, then we're really doing them a disservice and setting them up for increased injury risk in the future. Uh, I always look at uh, ACL treatment protocols that way, right? Why is it that I want someone to come back from a uh, post-op and be as strong as they were before. I'd rather have them be stronger than they were before because clearly they weren't strong enough before to prevent injury. They weren't moving appropriately before to prevent injury. They had a uh, faulty movement compensation somewhere or something happened that created that valgus collapse moment at the knee and led to a injury. And being able to really tease out and individualize your assessments and your interventions regardless of who you are, regardless of who you're working with, whether it be PT, chiropractic, uh, strength coach, trainer. I mean, that is the bread and butter of what we do. So again, it comes back to why, and it comes back to, so if I'm 
the the uh, rehab specialist, I'm the the strength or fitness coach. I have to first ask, well, why? All right. So you have a history of an ACL injury, and so my first question is not, um, you know, what exercises should I do for that? My first question is, why did you tear your ACL? Because I can think off the top of my head, I have a guy who's a pro soccer player who's torn his ACL three times, right? Um, but all of them are non-contact. I have an, uh, another kid who's a college college football player who planted in a pile, helmet came in full speed, hit the lateral portion of his knee, and it buckled and blew out his ACL. So going through that same concept, and we have a, a, a something called the ethical principle that we talk about in FMS, and it's protect, correct, develop. And so the first thing to do is protect. So how do I protect you from happening this again? Well, it's a very different approach that I'm going to take with a soccer player because I have to protect them by, by knowing that at the end of all this, you need to be able to decelerate, break down, change direction, amortize force, all that stuff that you couldn't the first time around, which is why the knee blew. And then I joke with the, the second guy, I say, listen, the first thing you need to do is stop getting helmets in your knee, right? So maybe I just got to make them faster so nobody can catch them. But I, that's not something that's part of the nature of, of their, the violence that, of the sport that he plays. And so it's going to be a little different rehab path for those two guys. And so with the, 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 the protect, correct, develop thing is that what I find is that the, your rehab world is pre is pretty good at the protect, sometimes a little overprotective, quite frankly, um, not understanding what the world is this person has to go back to. Um, and having realistic timelines because they're going to figure out a way back on the field or court. Um, and it's your job to make that efficient and effective so that when they do that, they're best ready for that. Um, but on the other end, the, the, the develop part, you're, you're not real good at that. Right. And we leave people not truly ready to return to action and play on my, on my side of the fence is we're really good at the develop part for the most part but we're not really good at the protect part. We don't first ask, we always look at what exercises can I do, should I do, but we don't ask which ones should I not do, which ones are not appropriate. And so I now have with, with holiday break, I have a bunch of college kids that just walked out the door, uh, they're home on break and they hand me their, their school programs. My job is not to be the, 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 the pompous jerk who says that program sucks, you're doing my program. I have to at least look at the outline of the program and say, okay, well, I can see what this strength coach is looking to do with you, but I'm going to make some modifications because that strength coach didn't do a movement screen, didn't do any kind of performance testing with you, and is doing this as a generic program for the 50, 60, maybe 100 kids in your program. So it's not individualized. I have the freedom to do that. And so I'm just going to make some modifications to make this more individualized to you. But there are also, we keep talking about specificity, there are some generalities that like people just should be able to do. Like, um, and that can, that can translate into whatever you're doing. There should be, and there's certain strength standards as an example that I, I want most of my athletes to do, regardless of whether you're going to have a, a ball, bat, a stick, glove, whatever you're going to have on your hand uh, when you go out and play. Um, there's certain strength standards that you kind of, I want to start hitting um, before we even get too specific into it. Um, and so if you aren't hitting those, a lot of people's programs will look somewhat the same provided that they don't have any significant restrictions that they shouldn't be doing those exercises. So it's this delicate balance of, of not needing to go too deep into the woods of with, with specificity, but also not missing the big rocks that, that uh, we often overlook. And, and I always joke that 
um, if you and we actually talk about it in, in our principles of program design course, as we talk about training and the the analogy to, uh, if anybody's heard of the jar of life, okay, the jar of life. It's a professor who, who originally gave this lecture talking about the meaning of life and. Um, and we just kind of stole that and use it in how it applies to training. And if you look at, you're trying to fill this jar and you have rocks, you have pebbles, you have sand. If you just fill it with all the sand first, and then you try to put in the pebbles and rocks, you're not going to fit it all. But if you put in the big rocks first, and then the pebbles and the sands, it'll all fit and it'll all match well. Now, the big rocks in life are your family, the ones you love, the, the things that are close to you, most close to you. Your pebbles are your career, your friends, your, your next layer on that ring of things. And then your sand is, is the day-to-day -day stuff. And, and so when I look at it with training, big rocks are, can you do basic things like what's your sleep look like? What's your breathing look like? What's your general nutrition? What's your um, you know, baseline movement competency? What's your base of, you know, of fitness? These are big rocks that I need to check. Then the pebbles, I can get a little bit more specific into the extremes of your activities. And then the sand is the real, the, the, the real infinite stuff that I may never even get to with you. Um, but we're all on Twitter arguing about sand, right? We're all on Twitter arguing about what, you know, is the trap bar deadlift jump as good as a power clean? Well, I got a kid who can't even touch his toes. So I don't give a shit about either of them, right? I need to fix that first, right? And then I want to be able to at least get them to learn how to hip hinge. And when they can hip hinge, then I can start teaching them a deadlift and then maybe uh, some of the things off of that. And then we can argue about that stuff. Let me get the big rocks and pebbles settled first. Because I guarantee if I walk into your facility or your, or your weight room or, or your, 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 your team training, that we're going to find some big rocks that you missed. And so stop arguing about the sand. If you've shown me that you've checked all those boxes first, then yeah, let's argue over beer and peanuts about the sand. And we may never come up with the right answer because we don't know, because there's too many moving parts. There's too many variables. There definitely is. And I love that analogy that you brought up uh, with the jar and life with the rocks and the sand. It made me think of, uh, I'm a huge fan of Pavel's work. And he wrote a book with Dan John uh, a while back uh, where he talks about what he calls easy strength. Uh, and he breaks up training into four main quadrants. And he said, what differentiates the best and strongest athletes from those that are still just kind of lost in the weeds, for lack of a better way to put it, is the amount of time they spend in the first two quadrants, as opposed to the second two quadrants. So his quadrants are quadrant one or Q1, which is just general physical prep, right? It's focused on lots of quality movement, at a low relative max. So there's nothing wrong with, you know, going into the gym and starting every single workout you do with 15 to 20 clean, good repetition body weight squats, right? Doing a set or two of 20 body weight squats every single day is not going to overload or overtrain your quads or your glutes or anything like that. It's just general physical prep. And then that leads us into stage two, which is general strength prepetition, right? So as we've talked about before, can you uh, brace your lumbar spine? Can you actively tighten and engage your core? Can you do a basic pull-up or chin-up, just a movement pattern? Can you do the movement pattern correctly? So we've moved from physical pep, uh, general physical prep to general strength prep into our third and fourth quadrants. Uh, the third quadrant he kind of described as a 
yin-yang interaction between strength training and your end goal. So now we're flirting with a goal of training. And then the fourth quadrant would be your overall goal. So maybe that's, you know, to have the strongest deadlift in the gym or to compete uh, internationally for uh, powerlifting or strongman or whatever. There's very few qualities that you, or few quantity of exercises that you're doing in that fourth quadrant, but you're doing it at a very high relative max. And if you don't have the base in the first two quadrants, right, your ability to generally move your body, and then the ability to hold general strength through something like a, say, like an active plank or a pull-up, then you're not going to be able to do that fourth quadrant, those fourth quadrant movements uh, as effectively as uh, someone who had that base would. So uh, the, one of the, the rules I have within my, uh, all the weight rooms that I, that I consult with, with, with high schools is that everything has a purpose and, and meaning that, and that purpose is every rep, every set, every workout is with one purpose in mind is that, and that is to win a state championship. And so it is not to get you good at working out, right? And so when someone asks me a question about the deadlift, my first question back is going to be, well, what are you doing it for? Are you doing, and then are you doing the deadlift to get good at the deadlift or you're doing the deadlift to get good? Because there's a difference between the two, right? If that is my sport because I am a power lifter or I am, that is part of what I'm doing as part of a, a CrossFit competition, then yeah, there's a different answer for that then I'm doing that to get better hip hinging. So I get in a better athletic position so I can be more explosive off the ball. And so I can't answer the question until I know what you're using it for. And then understand that everything we're doing in a weight room and on a field or on a track is part of your training is a means to an end that you are not here to, to get good at working out. You are here working out to get good. And that this is just one of the vehicles that we're using to optimize your performance. And then we have to look at the concept of minimal, maximal, and, and, and optimal. So as a minimum, yeah, there's certain minimums, as I said, I'd like to be able to do. Like as a baseline minimum, before I have the, my team start doing pull-ups and chin-ups, you need to be able to do a straight arm hang for 60 seconds. Well, if you can't do that, no use even trying a pull-up. And so let's, let's check that box first. And then once we get to... Uh, the ability to do pull-ups. Well, how many do I need to do? And what is our goal? Are we trying to build strength? Are we trying to build sides? Are we trying to build endurance? And then that's going to, to, to alter what my answer is going to be with that. And so understanding that just adding another five pound plate onto the bar or, or, or adding another rep, is that going to make an impact on what the ultimate goal is? And if not, then I'm at the optimal point. It's enough. Right. And so putting 50 more pounds on my bench or deadlift may not make it me any better when I, when I go out to, to throw a baseball, you know, as hard as I can. So I have to ask, is that my limiting factor and am I, or am I at the optimal, optimal part? And if I am, I got so much other stuff I need to work on that. I'm not going to spend all my time just getting good at this one thing. Cause there's, you know, I have a performance pyramid that I, that I use with my athletes and it has, you know, 60 different things that you need to be a great athlete and you know strength is one box right so once i can check that box i'm i'm focusing i'm going to do enough to maintain that strength while i'm building all those other properties 
Right. There's that therapeutic window with exercise, like you said, and you have to understand the purpose of it. And as you said, it's to get better at X, Y, or Z sport. But you also have to remember that a therapeutic window has a minimum effective dose. So you dose accordingly to get the result that you want, but you can also push it too much and then you start to get detrimental effects, side effects, right? We think about that therapeutic window in terms of pharmacology all the time, but rarely do we see people think about it in terms of exercise and fitness, uh, especially when they're training athletes. We often fall into the trap of more is better. And sometimes, as you said, it's all about finding what they need to uh, do in order to perform at their best. So with that, Eric, do you have any closing thoughts or closing remarks on what we've just been discussing? Uh, I'll kind of, I can go a million directions, but I'm going to jump off your last point. And, and this is something, again, we talk about in our program design courses that realize that everything we do has a cost, right? Nothing's free. And so when we talk about training or we're talking about, you know, our time invested it, it's with rehab is that what is our cost going to be and what is our checklist? Okay, well, we're going to have a physiological cost. And these costs aren't necessarily a bad thing because that's a cool way that you exercise is unique is that if you have a physiological cost and you, um, you're you on, a, a, on a, a, a bike, right? And that physiological cost creates a response where you're more fit the next time you do that because of this, this uh, stress adaptation cycle. Well, then I just have to dose that physiological cost so it's appropriate for your level of fitness, for your state of readiness, and for what your goal is. But then there's also structural costs. Right. So um, if we don't understand that balance, what we end up doing is is we end up getting gaining in one and losing in the other. So uh, as an example, is uh, um, there's also a metabolic cost like we want a metabolic cost if I'm trying to shed body fat or, uh, you know, that's why I kind of do that. That's a good cost. Unless you're a wrestler that doesn't want to lose any more weight. Right. Then I have to keep my weight at a certain point. So. It's understanding those, those, those costs and checks and balances. So uh, I had a, a kid that I was working with. He's a, he just actually signed his letter of intent for to play division one football. He's a big lineman and he, his weight got away from a little bit. And uh, he went to one of the camps and the, and the, one of the coaches told him, well, you need to, you need to drop some weight. We want to see you come in lighter and told him he needs to start running. And thankfully I got to him first because he said, yeah, coach, they like me, but they want me to start running to lose weight. Now he's 340 pounds. His knees rub together and his feet turn out like a duck when he runs. Okay. Think about the structural cost at four times body weight every time he takes a stride and runs. Right. And so great. He'll be 20 pounds lighter and he'll have no cartilage left in his knees. Okay. So understanding that cost that's involved. And that's really about like we started off with assessing what are their needs, assessing where do they need to get to? And then what are the limiting factors, whether it be movement uh, whether it be some deficiency on that end or whether it be a physical capacity and that sort of, uh, of, of deficiency on that end, and then check the boxes and fill in the blanks to the optimal level for that individual. And so having these checklists is, is what has allowed me to, to, to create programs that are efficient and effective and um, allowed me to be able to be adaptable for the different populations that we have, because I just need to know just always kind of lean into that checklist and say, 
are, are we are we getting all these boxes knocked off? Are we getting to all the places that we need to get to? Um, and so I'm not guessing. And it's not my cool exercise versus your cool exercise, because guess what? They neither of them may work or both may work. And so the, the idea is, is to figure out, well, why? Why are we doing this in the first place? And um, how will we know when we got there? Definitely. That's a great point to end on, Eric. Now, for people who want to find out more about you and stay up to date with all the things that you're doing, where can people find you? Okay, so there's there's two things that I'm going to uh, uh, put out there. The one is the is the uh, easiest way is just my website. It's ericdagati.com and it's E-R-I-C-D-A-G-A-T-I.com. Now, because I do a bunch of these and go out and speak all over, I, I put something right on the homepage called Ask Eric. And you just pop in a question in there. It goes directly to my email and I'll get back to you in a couple of days, uh, hopefully with an answer or probably as if you've learned anything, I'm going to ask you more questions uh, or if not, get you to a resource that'll help you. Um, the other thing uh, that I keep kind of hinting at other than the, the work I do with functional movement is a course that uh, a colleague, Mike Perry and I have put together uh, called the Principles of Program Design, where we talk a lot about the same things uh, you've been asking me about in terms of if you were using exercise as your mode of improvement for your clients, patients, athletes, um, you need to be able to answer some questions. And if I were to walk in your door and ask those questions and you don't have the answers for those, well, we need to, to get you set up with the right principles and the right checklist that, so you can answer those questions, whether it's your client, patient, or athlete asking them of you, or you should be asking of yourself to know that, am I doing right by this person? Am I doing the best that I can by this person? What methods you use? I don't really care. And, and, and so whether you're uh, on the fitness side using kettlebells or Olympic lifts or, or West side method, that doesn't matter to me. They're all great systems if used in the right time and place. And on the rehab side, I don't care if you use uh, the grass and technique or ART or spinal manipulation, as long as you can know when and where to use those tools and have a principles and, and checklist system that you can back that up against, then you're doing a great job. And we don't need to argue about the, 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 the methods. That's, that's a beer and peanuts sand argument. <laughs> Definitely. Eric, thank you so much for your time. This was an amazing episode. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast with Eric Degatti. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a huge favor and share it with a friend or someone you know that might benefit from the information that we shared throughout it. Next, if you've been listening to our show before and you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you hit the subscribe button and check out the links below for ways that you can support our podcast. And finally, make sure you follow both myself and Eric on social media. You can check out our Instagram handles below. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.